Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. That's because our guest, Adam Serwer, is a writer for the Atlantic Monthly for a change. Oh, wait. We've had a... A number of Atlantic Monthly writers, George Packer, Franklin Foer, Isaac Dovere. But unlike Packer and Foer and Dovere, Serwer, he knows what the hell he's talking about. I know this. I know this because I read his latest book, The Cruelty is the Point. It's a collection of essays from the Atlantic with the theme that, well, the cruelty was the point of the Trump administration, whether it was uh, separating little children from their parents at the border and not actually keeping track of them, um, the Muslim ban, uh, making fun of a disabled journalist, telling his crowds that he'd pay uh, legal fees of anyone who beat up a protester at one of his rallies, um, you know, on and on and on. Trump's a cruel man, but for him, that's a, that's a feature, not a flaw. So now let's go to Adam Serwer. Uh, this guy's really smart, Adam Serwer, and uh, I think you'll get a lot out of this one, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The book is The Cruelty is the Point, which is uh, so right. So right. I've read this book. It's terrific. And you're ahead of the curve. You, you write for Atlantic Monthly. And this is a collection of your essays, which were um, remarkably prescient in understanding Donald Trump and Donald Trump's uh, win and his uh, what that means about America. 
I know that sounds like a big compliment, but is that a fair thing to say? <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Although the book, the book also contains some new ones. Um, right. you know, lo- some of it looking back on some of the older essays, and also some new essays dealing with aspects of the Trump administration that I didn't get to deal with while he was still. Yeah, there. a lot of these essays, you you begin by uh, writing about what's happened since the essay, or in some part, uh, just saying, hmm, what this essay says turned out to be pretty true. And uh, this is what's happened since. What what struck me about it was uh, Democrats, uh, me included, I think, uh, toward the end of Obama, were going like, well, everything's great. This is, uh, we've gotten out of the Great Recession. We have an African-American president, a black president. America has really changed. Wow, this is great. (laughs) Is that about right? That was sort of the miscalc or the misread? Yeah, I mean, the 2010 recession was obviously really rough, and the recovery did not go as fast as expected or as as people wanted. And a lot of people were left out of it. Wages didn't grow as fast as they should have. There was also this fact of a black president who created in a lot of people this sense of loss um, that was emotionally radicalizing in some ways. And Donald Trump was, you know, he sensed that from the beginning. I mean, if you remember, uh, you know, he jumped onto the Bertha thing, you know, in the in, in a kind of led it term. almost. He almost led the Bertha thing. It's the kind of thing that is sort of his sweet spot in that all <laughs> it, it is entirely uh, it's a racist conspiracy <laughs> theory, but it, but it also has like an ideological valence. So it's a way of saying I am this type of person, the type of person that you are, and it also requires almost no like actual knowledge to understand or talk about. Like you can speculate endlessly about birtherism without having to learn anything. Whenever, you know, whenever Donald Trump had to actually learn how something in the government worked, he sort of struggled to explain it or discuss it. With something like birtherism, where he can just sort of give rein to his own emotional impulses, uh, he has a way of connecting with people's worst qualities. And that's sort of a, a, a key that you hit on uh, repeatedly through the book. And it's something that I don't think I really grabbed onto the extent that I did reading your book, which is that um, he really was talented, really talented in connecting with people on this level. But it was through things where you didn't have to know anything. In fact, it really helped. It really helped if you were uh, a complete idiot about any real public policy. That was like very helpful for him. And that he was just speaking to people's anxiety. And as what I was saying, it was like people were going like, all right, we got Barack Obama's president. We have a, finally, we have a black president. And he's really good. People respect him. Yes, we've made some mistakes. And some of the mistakes were not fighting for a big enough stimulus package. All this kind of stuff is stuff we're talking about right now. But, um, wow, we elected a black president. Wow, we finally are beyond that thing. And that's exactly 180 degrees wrong. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you could see uh, the cracks sort of in the... In the um tail end of the Obama administration. This is when Ferguson happened, when when, when the Black Lives Matter movement emerged. There was this sense that, yes, uh, you know, Obama had been elected, but there were all these very serious structural material problems that were still left um, as far as, you know, income inequality and joblessness and, and wages that fell disproportionately on Black people, but that were really sort of everyone's problems. And what Donald Trump did was he took those real issues and he offered these extraordinarily racist and bigoted but simple solutions to those problems. And for most people, that didn't work. We have to point out that he lost the popular vote twice. But his his coalition, the people that did respond to it, were sort of geographically optimized for the Electoral College, which meant that you know he could lose, as he did in the last election, by, you know, like 7 million votes and still be only like tens of thousands of votes away from the president. Affirm from stealing it. 
by going, yeah. <laughs> by asking for eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes in Georgia, by yeah. whining and dining the Michigan state legislators, by going to the Supreme Court with the backing of almost, you know, almost all the Republicans in the House, he almost managed to steal it by having people storm the Capitol, and that's losing by seven million votes. That's, yeah. but that is the configuration of where electoral votes are and how screwed up that is. But what's amazing is also, and this is something that that really entertained me uh, during that period, is how the Republicans who were running against him for the nomination completely missed it. Yeah, I mean, look, these those guys were not connected to the base in the same way Trump is, because Trump is essentially he has similar habits of political media consumption. I think is the answer is he was really good at he just like watched Fox News all day and then he channeled whatever he saw on Fox News. And because people who, you know, because so much of the Republican base is glued to Fox News, they were sort of it it was like this feedback loop where he was speaking the way that they thought, saying the things that they wanted to hear. Um, And in doing so, he sort of forged this identity. And when you talk about uh, you know, him trying to steal the election, trying to sort of, uh, you know, coerce Georgia's election officials into, you know, pretending that they have these extra th- a few thousand votes so that he could win the state's electoral votes, the sort of farce that's going on in Arizona. I mean, all that comes down to is uh, the sense of siege uh, that Donald Trump's most ardent supporters feel and that he appeals to, which is the sense that this is their country. It belongs to them. It doesn't actually matter if they're outnumbered because they are the legitimate inheritors uh, of the United States. And therefore, it's actually fine to use, you know, extra legal or in, in some cases, potentially violent means to overturn an election because no election won by their opponents could be legitimate in the first place. You know, that, that's an issue that Donald Trump exploited very effectively, but it's also one that has survived him. I mean, if you look at the Republican Party now, like they, they removed Liz Cheney from leadership for her insistence that Donald Trump did not win the, the 2020 election, that it was not stolen. You know, this idea that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, which is completely made up, is now, you know, you either have to be silent about it or you have to believe it as a condition of good standing in the Republican Party. And that's not so much about Trump in particular as it is about this sort of uh, conservative American identity uh, that refuses to recognize the legitimacy of, you know, their fellow citizens and their, you know, right to participate in the political process. Which gets to race. And let's talk a lot about that. Very tied to race. But very tied to race. It's just worse. It's just gotten worse. You know, we breathed a sigh of relief when Biden, when it finally became clear that it was over. <laughs> and it wasn't really clear that it was over. Right. Really until the inaugural, I guess. I'm not sure when it was clear. And I, I make this case where Liz Cheney, when she voted for impeachment, went like, okay, I know I'm only one of 10, but come on. So clear what this was. This is really dangerous. I'm not going to pay any price in the Republican Party for this because I, it's clear what happened, and you have to vote the way I, you had to vote for impeachment. It's okay. It's not convicted. I'm going to be fine though. And then, to her surprise, and to my surprise, and to a lot of people's surprise, no, the Republican Party said, "You know what? Uh, I guess our base just believes it was stolen, and we're just going to say that." We're not going to contradict them anyway. We're going to stay silent about it if we, if we know that it wasn't stolen. We're just not going to say it. And so it's just gotten worse. And now we're seeing these states trying to write these laws so that they can literally steal the election next time. Right. I mean, look, the, 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 the supposed sort of conspiracy theory of election fraud is the proximate catalyst for these election laws. But the actual reason is 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 what I said earlier, which is that they do not believe that democratic political victories are legitimate because they do not believe that the democratic constituencies, the, the people who vote for the Democratic Party are legitimate 
American voters. They think of them as a people apart who, you know, to the extent that Democrats win, they win through fraud, they win through coercion, or, or they win through the votes of people who are not truly American. I mean, when you saw Donald Trump, you know, in, in that's after the election and before the inauguration, he was saying things like we can't allow Philadelphia and Atlanta to decide an election. Well, we all know what that means. And so it feels like it's sort of about Trump in the sense that, you know, he's a martyr to this cause. But the actual cause is that they are afraid that their country is being taken away from them. And because they are the true representatives, the true inheritors of of the United States, they can take whatever action is necessary in order to make sure that that does not happen. Because they're white. If it's cheating. Because they're Um, white. It's, you know... It's it is partially I mean, like there there is a, a racialized aspect of this and that, you know, they think of themselves uh, that the, the Republican Party is a substantially white Christian party. But that sort of racialized nationalism, uh, we can see it is mostly white. It is overwhelmingly white, but it is not exclusively white. And that, you know, one of the innovations of American history, as far as race is concerned, is that you can always redefine whiteness to include people that were not included. And that includes in the uh, early 20th century, we passed all these restrictive immigration laws targeting people from Southern and Eastern Europe. They were trying to keep Italians and Jews from coming here because they thought of them as like lesser white races, as, as, as genetically inferior. There were all these supposed social scientists proving that Jews and Italians were stupid. And then after World War II, that all changed. And the, the idea of American whiteness expanded to include people who had been previously discriminated against. And so there is a way in which this kind of racist, discriminatory nationalism can expand to include people that were previously excluded. But it certainly is the case, as you mentioned, as you said, that whiteness is a big, the idea of, you know, who is legitimately American is is ultimately tied up in who counts as white. Yeah, I am uh, not saying by any means that everyone that voted for Trump was racist. But I will say that every racist voted for Trump. <laughs> I wouldn't even go that far because I don't, you know, I, I think it's, 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 it's close. If, if, if only one party <laughs> were racist, if racism, you know, was just a partisan thing, I think it would be actually less of a problem than it actually is. I mean, if you look back at like Reconstruction in, 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 in the 1860s, you had the Democratic Party, which is like an explicitly racist party. And then you had the Republican Party who's doing all this stuff to make sure that black men can vote in the South because, you know, their party oh, is yeah, dependent yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's on this the, black constituency. I'm talking about post the Civil Rights Bill. I'm talking about post 1964. Yeah. Okay. But but even even so, there is, you know, there is, I think, you know, there are different kinds of racism. And while certainly I, I would argue that the Republican Party is actively putting in place policies that are designed to disenfranchise or otherwise harm uh, uh, largely Democratic constituencies, um, which are far more diverse than those that support the Republican Party at this point. It's a mistake to think of racism, which is, you know, just this incredible, powerful structural force throughout American history as something that can be reduced to, you know, one party or the other. I I agree. But I I do buy um, Heather McGee's formulation in The Sum of Us. Which is it's a great that, book. isn't that a great book? And and basically what she's saying is is that uh, whites in this country are sold and sold very much by Republicans the idea that anything that benefits black people hurts white people when in fact all of this racism and the effect of it just hurts everybody. That's right. It hurts our ability to prosper as a country and to move forward as a country and. Uh, I I love that view of it and that uh, take on it. And I do believe that's the Republican Party now. I mean, I do believe there is a big difference on race between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Look, everybody in the world has implicit bias or almost everybody in the world has implicit bias. I have implicit bias. I mean, I love Heather talks in the book about just um, this idea of colorblindness that people sometimes raised and they go like when i look at someone i don't see the race at all i don't know if i i don't even it doesn't register to me whether i'm looking at but bullshit this is part of our 
what we carry every day going into and and what we've developed over our life and to ignore it is 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 foolish so there are yes there's different kinds of racism different degrees of prejudice but if you're going to break it down the republican party does have an interest in fulminating racism I think that part of the issue here is that when you have racial polarization, that's always going to happen. Heather's book is fantastic, and she makes a wonderful point about how this sort of zero-sum perception hurts everyone. I mean, simply the election of Barack Obama, this perception, I think Rush Limbaugh said, uh, he, he was like, there was some viral vid- video in Obama's first term where like a, a bunch of white kids and black kids got on a fight in a school bus. And he's like, in Obama's America, the white kids get beat up and the black kids cheer. And that was just a microcosm of what he- Heather was describing, which is the way in which conservatives try to make white people feel threatened by black progress, no matter what form it takes. And, it, you know, it, one way you can actually see, though, her thesis about how racism hurts everyone in action is simply the Trump administration's response to COVID. There was this perception that, you know, when the uh, (laughs) data on racial disparities came out, there was this perception that it wasn't happening to, quote, our people. And that uh, hampered the federal government's response because Jared Kushner and Donald Trump were not particularly concerned with addressing the issue because they assumed it was a, quote, blue state problem or or something that was only happening in cities. Right. It's it's hurting blue states, not, not red states. So let's not worry about it. When right. oh my and then it hurt God. everybody. Yes, because uh, it's a uh, it's a virus. Yeah, <laughs> and it spreads. It doesn't. The air. It, 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 it doesn't discriminate based on race in that way. No, no, it doesn't at all. Now, the cruelty is the point. Is a uh, tough thing to say, but it's very persuasive. So when you're talking, for example, I think the easiest way to wrap your head around that may be the way they treated immigrants by separating children from their families and basically said, if we make this horrible for people coming to the United States and even staying here because they made it horrible, they made it, it was cruel to American citizens, like kids whose parents may not be uh, citizens, may not be documented, but they were American citizens. They're in school. They're worried when they go to school if they're going to come home and their parents are going to be there. That's cruel. Mm-hmm. And then the idea that the cruelty is the point is, yeah, yeah, I think Stephen Miller believed that let's make them not want to come here. Let, let's actually make them want to leave because it's just not worth it because it's so horrible to be here. That to me is the most like on the nail, the cruelty is a point is the point truth. Yeah. I mean, look, they, they were shattering families to make a point. It, it, we don't need to dig very far. I mean, this has been reported in the New York Times when, uh, in terms of like internal meetings. And there were things that Jeff Sessions said publicly and then reversed himself on. But they wanted to make the conditions of the American immigration system so absolutely unbearable that people would stop coming. And it did not work. It it didn't work because, uh, you know, you cannot devise some torture that is vicious enough to prevent a parent from wanting a better life for their child. You just can't do it. And, you know, to the extent that they have even a sliver of hope coming here compared to back home, it's just not it's just not going to work. And, and and we've actually tried it in immigration policy in particular. We've tried it several times. We think we can militarize the border even further and that'll stop people when the actual answer is that we need to do something to make sure that we can, you know, control the immigration flow, the demand for immigrant labor in a way that reduces the incentive to try and find a way over the border illegally. Because otherwise, I mean, they tried it. Uh, in 2019, it, we had like the biggest surge in, you know, undocumented crossings uh, over the border that we've ever had, or at least in the past like 20 years until this summer when COVID uh, started receding. 
but like the policy did not work. It was not an effective policy in the, in terms of preventing illegal immigration, but it was an effective policy in terms of emotional satisfaction for both the Trump administration and for, uh, you know, many of the Trump administration supporters who wanted to see these people crack down on as harshly as possible. And I think the reason why the cruelty is the point resonates as a phrase is because we all know that part of ourselves. We all know, have been in a situation where we have been nastier to someone than we should have. And we've also seen how that sort of human quality can become exponentially more cruel when it occurs in groups. And this was just that ethos raised to the level of the federal government and it, it, and it produced horrifying results. What you, what you uh, write about and point to in the book is uh, photos of lynchings and the white people who are at the lynching really enjoying it. I mean, really, and and uh, sharing the enjoyment <laughs> with their friends. Yeah, and sort of like, yeah, let's let's get in this photo. I mean, that's sadism. I guess those photos. I went to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, which you should absolutely visit um, mm-hmm. if you can. Speaking to your listeners, of course, I know you've been there. But absolutely, uh, you know, I was looking at those photos, and I'm just so struck at how casual people are. They look like they're at a party. There are people trying to like make sure that they get their face in the picture. There's like a, a, you know boyfriends and girlfriends holding hands. These are people who are not afraid to be photographed on camera with the corpse that they just mutilated it's it's insane to think about it like that but that's you know that was that was how casual people were about this sort of behavior and you can only do that once you've written a group of people out of humanity that that is sort of the the like far end of the spectrum of cruelty that people are capable of when they consider themselves in one category of people and another group of people in a different category where did you uh where did you guys meet oh we met at a lynching yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it wasn't really a date. We just met there and then we made a date after that for another Imagine lynching. explaining that to your children. Like it's, it's just, it's, this was just a part of the social fabric of American life in certain parts of the country. Probably that conversation has happened, but the actual, um, cr- the cruelty is the point is something that's hard to wrap your brain around until you wrote it as <laughs> you, you oh here I'm titling this the cruelty is the point that was one of your essays and uh yeah. and you see you read that you go like huh that makes a lot of sense I oh yes and of course who is a crueler man than Donald Trump? His one of his innovations was making it fun for people, you know, and, and, and I wrote that essay after, uh, you know, this was during the Kavanaugh hearings. However you feel about how that went down, what happened was that a woman testified before the country that she had been the victim of an attempted rape. And that the thing that she most remembered was the two men she was accusing laughing during the incident. And then Donald Trump went to a rally and he made fun of her. He made all of her, all of his supporters mock her and laugh at her um, because it was the cruelest thing that he could possibly have done. And because he knew that they would all enjoy it. He made fun of a reporter who had uh, handicaps that he made fun of. Uh, He would routinely do this kind of thing that you would just go, wow, that's um, it's really nasty. That's our president, huh? That's our president. You know, it's it's so odd that, uh, you know, Donald Trump was our president. And it's you look back at it and you go like, God, there, there's 320 million people in the country. And that guy is our president. And then you think about there's seven seven some billion people and the worst person in the world is also the president <laughs> so you go what are the chances of that i guess um one over 300 million times one over seven billion the chances of the uh, worst person in the world also being the president of the united states I, I mean, I, you're not going to get an argument there for me. He, he, he was an extraordinarily cruel and nasty person with a 
unbelievable disregard for the well-being of other people. Uh, it's extraordinary, and not just other people, but people who love him. I mean, when you think about what he did after having COVID um, and recovering for it, from it because he had the best medical care in the world, he went out and held a bunch of like super spreader events so that his most devoted supporters could like possibly risk getting sick in order to see him. How about him getting the shot but not doing it publicly? And and how about him not in- encouraging people to get vaccinated? How about him not doing that? That's friggin' oh, just that he's murdering people by doing that. His own supporters too. That's who he's doing this to. It it, it is amazing. And here's a guy. I think he was mad that they didn't approve the vaccine before the election. Remember, they did it only like a week or two after the election, and he must have been gone apeshit about that. But instead of like going, okay, (laughs) you know, I can take credit for at least naming Operation Warp Speed, Operation Warp Speed. The the idea that, you know what, we should get a vaccine as fast as possible really shouldn't count as an idea. But he did, he did count, he did call it Operation Warp Speed, which I actually believe um, that, that was Barron's idea. I think Barron had the best idea in, in the administration. I mean, look, I will give him credit. That is a delightfully nerdy name for a government project, and I approve. Yes. Okay. So he did that. But then why not go like, well, let me take credit for something good. Let's vaccinate as many people as possible, as opposed to letting Fox do what Fox has done which has basically discouraged people from getting vaccinated, which is making us not get to herd immunity. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, we took the polio vaccine and you just went, you got the polio vaccine and then people didn't get polio. This this is the polio vaccine. This works. And uh, the fact that he just didn't do that, this guy just goes out of his way to be a dick is what I'm saying. There you go. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, what's extraordinary, as you point out, is is that Republicans are the most like vaccine hesitant population. And so his refusal to encourage his own supporters to get vaccinated is like those rallies in the sense that he shows a a just general indifference to the lives and well-being of his own supporters, which does not diminish their devotion to him in the slightest. Yes. But if you're not one of those people, you can see how much contempt he actually holds for them. And it's it's sort of a maddening thing because he makes them feel good in a particular way. And because of that, they don't care about the fact that he obviously really does not care whether they live or die and is not willing to take the slightest of efforts to make sure they're okay if that's going to inconvenience him in the slightest. You know, he sort of, you know, jump-started the Ministry of Truth. I mean, or jump-started the idea of fake news and jump-started the idea of disinformation. There's two universes and it's our universe or their universe and their universe is, is just false. And so we have a large percentage of the Republican Party believing that the election was stolen, like 75%. And so we really have the Ministry of Truth. War is peace. And this is why your book is so relevant now, because it's just getting worse. It's just getting worse. It's in, in many ways that the Republican Party now has become a completely nihilistic party, as far as I can tell, whose only purpose is to win re-election. And Republicans in the Senate and in the House know that the only way most of them will lose is be primaried from the right. And so even though most of my former Republican colleagues in the Senate, I would say, know that the election wasn't stolen, they will not dare say that. It's definitely true that the top item on the agenda is trying to make sure that is trying to restrict the electorate so that Republicans can continue to hold on to power, having a minority of the votes. If Democrats were willing to make certain structural changes, they would have a better chance of holding power. And not only that, but Republicans would have to moderate in order to win over somebody beyond their hardcore base, which currently 
the, the structure of both the U.S. Senate and the Electoral College and, and even within states makes it much easier for Republicans to hold on to power by being sort of this you know, extreme. But, you know, there is there's other stuff that's going on. And it's really extraordinary how vicious some of this stuff is when you talk about the Republican laws that are. Uh, going or, or that that are being considered are going to in, into effect in the states targeting trans children or trying to essentially ban discussion of racism in public schools or in Florida where they're trying to uh, where they basically uh, attempted to legalize the vehicular homicide of Black Lives Matter protesters. These are all sort of symptoms of the same thing that's driving the voting issue, which is that they don't really want to share the country with people who are unlike them. And they are uh, figuring out ways to uh, disenfranchise, punish, or otherwise hurt those people, because that remains the animating ethos of the party, even though Donald Trump is theoretically not leading it anymore. Theoretically, but they're so scared, afraid to buck him to basically, they're just, they're afraid to be Liz Cheney, right? I think that's part of it. But I also think that if Donald Trump, you know, uh, faded away tomorrow, uh, that we would still be heading in this direction because there are larger structural and ideological issues at play here that Donald Trump is a symptom of. He is a product of those things, and he is extremely good at exacerbating them, making them worse, and manipulating them. But these are problems that in some ways predate him. Let's talk about that. Talk about that. How, we should have seen this coming is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, look, I think if you go back to like 2006, um, and you see George W. Bush trying very hard to pass some kind of immigration bill because the Republicans are thinking we are going to win over, you know, a substantial number of Latino voters for a generation with this. And it's, you know, they're going to be staunch Republicans. And you see this absolute rebellion from talk radio over the immigration issue. They just do not want these people, these millions of people to gain legal status. Uh, and remember, it, it would not have been like immediate amnesty. It, they would have had a path to citizenship. So it would have taken many years. And, and that rebellion, it, it was turbocharged by Barack Obama becoming president on the strength of this broad multiracial coalition. To them, you know, they're seeing the end of what they consider the Republican Party. Uh, and you can see this, and this is still on Fox News every day. You can see Tucker Carlson talking about this or um, Laura Ingram. They talk about immigrant voters or Latino voters or non-white voters essentially as sort of biologically incapable of conservatism, which is obvious nonsense. It, it, it was proven to be nonsense in, in, in the most recent election, but it's nonsense in general. It's, it's a form of genetic determinism, which is a fancy way of saying it's racist. But this stuff was manifesting many years before Donald Trump came on the scene. I mean, if you look at, you know, in the 90s when David Duke is running for office in Louisiana, uh, Donald Trump goes on CNN and he's like, you know, it, the Republicans are trying to fight David Duke, but I think he speaks to a lot of their base. Uh, and I think if he ran for president, he'd get a lot of votes. I mean, look at Pat Buchanan. He's basically David Duke in sort of a nicer package. Donald Trump said this 40 years ago. You know, he he he, he knew exactly what was going on and he use that to his advantage. You bring up him calling for the execution of the Central Park. Central Park. I mean, that Donald Trump's racism is not the racism of like the Deep South, right? He's not like Pitchfork Ben Tillman. It is very much the racism of like 80s New York City, uh, where, you know, there's all the there's all these problems with crime and poverty. And he has the most violent possible response, which is just kill anybody who's suspected of a crime, even if they're children. Now, at this point, when he said that, let, let's uh, clarify to people what I'm talking about. Th this woman in Central Park was raped and beaten up. Was that is that correct? Yes. Within an inch of her life. And these uh, five young what were black and latino uh kids yes that's right were arrested and they turned out they they just didn't do this they they were innocent <laughs> and he, now did he call for them to be executed even after that had been determined so he r runs an ad in the paper saying you know he doesn't name them by name but he implies they should be executed um, and, and it turns out, you know, they're ultimately exonerated by DNA evidence. There's a great Netflix series, When when They See Us, by Ava DuVernay, which sort of dramatizes this uh, th this whole case. 
um, from the perspective of the families that went through it. Um, but even after that, when he was running for president in 2016 and after, even after these guys were exonerated, they were given money by New York City. They, the, 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 the city admitted that they made a mistake. Donald Trump was still insisting that they were guilty. And, you know, part of that is simply that if it is sort of like a collective guilt, like it doesn't matter if they were actually guilty, they were probably guilty of something because, you know, <laughs> they are uh, they okay. are part of this group. They are the black and Latino youth that Donald Trump wanted the police to crack down on. So, you know, it doesn't actually matter whether or not they committed the actual crime. They are members of the group he wanted to see the police punish uh, for whatever transgressions he was imagining they were responsible for. Uh, and that sort of like collective uh, responsibility uh, on behalf of these groups is like something that is central to Donald Trump's politics is why he it's why he came up with the Muslim ban. It's why he's like, you know, he he pardoned soldiers committed of war crimes against Muslims. I mean, not even Nixon was willing to do that kind of thing. Um, it, it's really quite extraordinary and was undermining of good order and discipline in the United States military. There are all these guys who came out and testified that their commanding officers had behaved in a particular way and, and had committed crimes. And when Donald Trump pardoned them, that, you know, those I mean, the purpose of that is to prevent people from coming out and saying, hey, this guy committed an actual murder. And those those guys had to be pretty courageous to do that. Extremely brave. And yeah. Donald Trump took their sacrifice, which was on behalf of the institution of the United States military, and tossed it in the trash because the more important value to him was the idea that there is nothing that you can do to a Muslim that constitutes a crime. Yeah, the cruelty is the point, is uh, the book... It's a collection of, of essays. When, when did this series start? Before the 16 election or during the run-up to it, right? So I think the first one is is published the day of, after the 2016 election. And then the rest are published after that, including the new ones, which have not been published before, and including the, the, the essays revisiting the pieces that were published in The Atlantic and looking at, you know, sort of how they've aged and, and, and what we can say about the phenomena that they discuss now that we've had a little distance. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Adam Sewer. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Tell me a little bit about about you, because you write for Atlantic Monthly. I imagine you're just, uh, I would think that and most of the people like you that I know, and we interview, uh, I interview some of them, uh, really try to not be partisan in an odd way. I mean, obviously, this you read this book and you, you kind of know where you stand, but the the way you do this is from someone who has... Uh, distance is clarifying. And I really just can't tell you how spot on so much of this is and how, you know, you'll read an essay and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So Hillary, when she's talked about the deplorables in the 16th election, everyone agreed that was the worst thing anybody said. <laughs> like Trump was saying this, oh, horrible, 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 horrible stuff constantly. She says that, and suddenly she has said the worst thing anyone can say in the campaign. It, it was obviously not a politically smart 
thing no. to say. It, it's sort of weird because it wasn't her, her her phrasing of it was so strange. She didn't actually call those people deplorables. She called the different kinds of things a basket of deplorables. So the different kinds of right. She was talking about like some certain particular emotional quality qualities that she considered deplorables. But it became this <laughs> thing where Republicans like reappropriated it. So, you know, you would go to Trump rallies, which I did, and and there were all these people who would like self-identify as deplorables um, sure. because for them, you know, like I said, you know, their sense of uh, of being under siege, this was for them their way of creating an identity, an oppositional identity to this dominant culture that they imagine themselves rebelling from or being persecuted by. And so, you know, th- th- other politicians have been able to survive statements like that. I mean, you think about Obama saying cling to guns and religion, or they tried to do something similar with Joe Biden, where he said, I think like mathematically, when you broke down his like actual percentage, he said something like five to 10% of the American people are assholes or something like that, which like to me is like, uh, uh, it's such a low number that it's almost complimentary. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Only one out of 10 Americans is a jerk. That's that's amazing. But I'm inspired by that. It's like, (laughs) wow, we're a great country. But it's the kind of gap that, like, you know, very, very much feeds into like it, it was like perfectly constructed to feed into the sense of victimhood that Donald Trump was trying to cultivate. I mean, to this day, you still hear people using deplorables in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It uh, it must occur to her every once in a while that if I hadn't said that, it would have been the president there. If but for, you know, that can drive you nuts. Hillary, don't listen to this. Don't listen. (laughs) I'm sorry. I think, you know, as far as the Atlantic goes, I mean, when this first happened, I don't know if you've ever read W.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. I I did not. I must confess. When it was written, the sort of consensus, the elite historical consensus on the Civil War was that Reconstruction had been a huge mistake and that the Republicans were wrong to give black men the vote and, and that it was a good thing when the Democrats and the Ku Klux Klan and their other paramilitary allies overthrew the Reconstruction governments. Whose consensus was this? This was the consensus of professional academic historians, uh, elite <laughs> professional academic historians. This was like coming okay. out of Columbia University. It was a group of historians known as the Dunning School uh, who had, mm-hmm. you know, basically rewritten history the way that the the sons of Confederate veterans would have wanted it written. Um, and Du Bois comes out and he writes this extraordinary history of Reconstruction. And, it, you know, everybody calls him, uh, you know, a communist and, and they're saying he's wrong and he's he's not objective because he's black, he can't really see what the truth is. And then sort of decades later, you have historians like C. Van Woodward and later on people like Eric Foner. And and basically it becomes the new historical consensus as people are reevaluating Reconstruction in the 1960s forward is that Du Bois of the period has written by far the most accurate history of Reconstruction and none of the other ones that were considered the historical consensus at the time can even come close. When the Trump era started, I was just thinking to myself, you know, obviously I'm no Du Bois, but I'm going to try my best to write what I think is really happening, even if people think I'm crazy or people are saying, you know, if you write these things, you know, this is why people don't vote Republican because uh, liberals are always calling them racist or whatever. I was inspired by Du Bois and I was trying to write as clearly as possible the way that he did. Obviously, uh, as I said, I'm no Du Bois, but I was inspired by his example. And this book is essentially me trying to do my best to follow his example and sort of in terms of saying things as clearly as possible, as best I can, as best as I see them. Well, it served you well. Thank you very much. Yeah. And that's why I'm having you on, because uh, as you read this book, you go, oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't see that then. And in fact, I I didn't see that until I just read this. <laughs> and uh, you do see it very clearly, but you're no Du Bois. I mean, come on. Uh, I mean, who is? <laughs> but, yes. uh, you know, in his time, he was like basically the only one. But now I'm delighted to say that the news industry is a lot more integrated than it was. Both the academy and, and, and the news industry is more integrated than it was at the time Du Bois was writing. So I'm hardly the only person making certain arguments, but... You know, I think there was an admirable resistance to the Trump administration's attempts to rewrite reality um, by many writers, not just myself. And I think that 
has served the country well. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Who no. knows I mean, where this is going at this point? No, no. I mean the uh, you know the critique of the media is that you know it's it's biased. It's a, has a liberal bias, and uh, I, I wrote about that with mm-hmm. a couple books I wrote about how they <laughs> you know Fox was all about like we're we're actually providing. I remember that book. Balance cup, yeah, lies and lying liars, which at that time everyone said you can't call someone a liar. Well, I, I go like, well, what if they're lying? <laughs> okay, well, there's that, but still, you can't call them a liar. And now, no one calls anything other than a liar. You're a liar. Oh yeah, well, you're a liar. Yeah, but you're lying. <laughs> this book had like an extraordinary like description of footnotes in Ann Coulter books that was extremely yes. funny so much so that I still remember it yeah well well she didn't do footnotes she did endnotes <laughs> so, and and endnotes are very different than footnotes because the footnote you can go down to the bottom of the page and look at the footnote and go like oh that's entirely bogus yes this point she's making because that's that's she's lying whereas who goes to look at the endnotes except me I remember I, I, I had these students, you know, at, at the, mm-hmm. the Shorenstein Center at the Kennedy School. And uh, one of the first class, uh, you know, I sat him down. I go like, okay, you know that Ann Coulter is lying. Uh, first of all, she's Ann Coulter. And secondly, she has endnotes. <laughs> so I'm teaching you, supposedly I'm teaching you, but what you're doing is my research for me. Um, how to write <laughs> I'm going satire. to officially... <laughs> And I'm going to officially let's do that. beg your audience to read the endnotes in my book. There's some good stuff in there. I have stuff that didn't quite fit in. Yeah, but you're put, your endnotes are our service. It's, it's not her covering up a lie. <laughs> but, I mean, that's not the purpose of your endnotes. Uh, that's not why you made them endnotes. You made them endnotes. I know. Because... I'm very proud of my endnotes. <laughs> I, I want people to read them. She put them at the end so that you wouldn't see what she was doing. Uh, you put yeah. them at the end so you can explain something. There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're like a journalist, and or like you know, where you work for the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, Ann Coulter is um, Donald Trump's favorite pundit, or was until he didn't. He 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 actually was not nasty enough to immigrants for Ann Coulter. Oh. He was too nice. I debated her once, uh, Ann Coulter, and after the debate, uh, my wife, who came to the debate, went, the poor dear. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't because I beat her up or something like that. It was just like, man, there's something really wrong with her. The poor dear. (laughs) I go, honey, don't feel bad. So <laughs> she's actually grown uh, even more explicit than she was back in the day. Well, I mean, now it's because just she, like she had it's to total mask off. Well, she, it's because you had to. You, you, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Everything. Right. So and you know why? Because the cruelty is the point. That's right. And, and Very she's on cruel. Message. Yeah, uh, that is. I mean, because you, you're going like. Oh my God! Didn't they realize they were separating children from their parents, and what the trauma of that is going to be, and that they didn't keep track of of them so they could reunite them? Oh no, 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 no! That was the point. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They did it on purpose. Yeah. They didn't even keep records to make sure that they could put, you know, put these families back together. They had no. They just didn't care. No, and 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 the and that was the point. The point. And and let's make it just let's traumatize kids and families. Let's ruin their lives. That trauma, that early childhood trauma. Let's do that. So maybe we'll get fewer people coming here because it's uh will make the experience so horrible and ruin so many people's lives and have them feel that trauma in their bodies their whole life. Because um, I'm a I'm a, a complete asshole. And if you are <laughs> if you are a white American, then chances are your family did the exact same thing at some point and was let in because for most of America's existence, we had essentially open borders for white people. 
Yeah, but, um, you know, a large part of it was mainly uh, from, you know, you couldn't sneak in the country if you were going across the Atlantic. Yeah. At least it was harder. Well, it was harder, but you could you could go to Canada and cross over, or you could go through Mexico, which European immigrants sometimes did. Um, and if you w- stayed in Canada for five years as a European immigrant and, and, and became a resident, you could come in and get citizenship in the United States really easily. It's sort of extraordinary how lax our immigration, because you hear this, you, I actually used to hear this from Trump supporters all the time. They'd say, well, my family came over here legally. You know, and and the truth is, there's almost no way to come over here illegally if you were an immigrant from Europe <laughs> at the turn of the yeah. century. You didn't even need need to be able to speak English, uh, and that includes Stephen Miller's ancestors, who absolutely did not speak English when they came over, or at least uh, one of them did not. You're familiar with the phrase "Shanda for the Goyim," right? Oh, of course. Okay, well, Stephen Miller, a Shanda for the Goyim. I think there is an almost unanimous. <laughs> agreement on that as far as you can get an anonymous opinion among american jews to clarify i am also jewish that miller is a shonda for the goyim and he knows that for for my gentile listeners who also didn't grow up in new york (laughs) (laughs) shonda for the goyim means a disgrace uh before the goyim before gentiles for jews so for example um the winner of the Shonda for the Goyam Award for 33 years running at one point was Roy Cohen. <laughs> Donald Trump's mentor. <laughs> I know. That's a good joke, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sorry. I should be taking all of this more seriously, but, but I am. So uh, going forward, um, <laughs> uh, things looking up. I mean, I think that, look, the pandemic's ending. The Democrats passed a really good stimulus bill. But if they do not pursue some sort of structural reforms to the guard to voting and, um, you know, and the composition of the U.S. Senate, I think that Democrats are going to have a really hard time competing both in, 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 in you know, state elections and in federal elections. I, I don't know what's going to happen with the midterms, but even if... Democrats have say, you know, what they there's something called a generic ballot, which is something that political scientists use to measure, you know, the level of support in the country for one party or the other. And even if the Democrats have a substantial advantage in in the generic ballot, the nature of things is going to make it very hard for them to hold on to their either majority in the House or the Senate, unless things are very different. That speaks to a number of structural aspects of our country, the two senators from states that are from every state and states that are uh, overrepresented and states that are underrepresented, and that works against us. And then also the gerrymandering that uh, Republican state legislators uh, do and continue to do and want to continue to do. And because we lost the uh, so many down ballot races, that's going to continue. Uh, in in other words, in, in 2020, there were a number of state legislatures that we were hoping to flip, and we flipped none of them. And in fact, lost a couple. And then, uh, of course, what you were talking about in terms of uh, you know election reform, if we don't pass that, and man, oh man, it could be really they, they could just be stealing elections. When you have this kind of Republican dominance of state legislatures and they can draw the lines so that essentially there's actually, you know, in a state like Wisconsin, it's basically because of like clustering and gerrymandering. It's basically almost impossible uh, for Democrats to win a majority in the state legislature, which means that the Republican and, and, you know, that short circuits democracy, because if 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 representatives are not accountable to the people, uh, then they have no reason to heed their opinions. Um, and so they can just do whatever they want. They're, they're, they're completely unaccountable. And 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 you have a, a situation like that. And when we, you see sort of these Republican legislatures running wild now, you know, as far as like passing laws on abortion or attacking trans kids or, or, or completely altering election rules in a way to try and rig the system in their favor, this is because they're not afraid of going to the ballot box because they have constructed things so that they are almost entirely insulated 
um, from the ability of people to vote them out. At least we ended on an optimistic note. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not so much fun at parties, you might say. Yeah. Oh, no. Adam's here? Hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Hello. Well, thank you. And congratulations. Thank you so much for having this. me. Yeah, you bet. And um, the book is uh, The Cruelty is the Point. Oof. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.